Brothers and sisters, let us look to the Lord in prayer. We need Him to teach us, yes? Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're continuing ahead in the book of Acts. We're looking at specifically uh, verses 11 through 15 today. I'll read from verse 6 of chapter 16 through to verse 24, so you can have the context. Please listen very carefully, because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who we met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came and and he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. 
Again, you'll see there uh, a helpful map in your sermon notes, which will provide some geographic context as we continue through the book of Acts, this being Paul's second missionary journey. You'll see there I've listed the sermon plan for this section of Acts at Philippi. Today, running the straight course is the sermon today. Next week, uh, Lord willing, the great wrath of the serpent of old is the title of that sermon. And then the week after, the kingdom which cannot be shaken, uh, Paul and when, when Paul is in prison. The great wrath of the serpent, of course, we'll see next week with them being beaten and thrown in jail. And then the ruler over the kings of the earth will be the final sermon in this section as we see Paul standing up, believing that Jesus Christ is indeed the ruler over all the kings of the earth, including those local officials who had acted wrongly. This particular scripture from Luke chapter 9, I think, is important for us to consider as we're pondering the text that we will go through today. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Some very significant priorities these fairly reasonable individuals laid out to Jesus. I'm going to follow you, Lord, but I've got these other really important things to take care of. And Jesus makes it very clear that that kind of kingdom, that kind of thinking makes one not fit for the kingdom of God. So as you are hearing the text today, as as we're hearing God's word today, that's a question for us. Am I living and thinking and living in a way that is fit for the kingdom of God? Today, running the straight course, as we see they did, we'll look at their journey to Philippi first, and then we'll learn some about Philippi and why it was important, kind of why they chose that spot. We'll see their slow start in Philippi and kind of consider what that must have been like for them. And then they continue, uh, not at all uh, drawn away from their path, not daunted or undaunted, we should say, going, continuing, seeking whom to help. And then we see Lydia receiving this divine help. We see her household is baptized. And then her new faith is on display through how she's heeding God's word and having her household baptized, and particularly her hospitality that she insists upon. And we'll have an opportunity to consider ourselves in light of these occurrences, in light of the work of God, and see how we can apply these principles to our lives today. So the journey to Philippi. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. So Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and their team, they leave from Western Asia, from Troas, as soon as they can, in order to obey the divine vision given to Paul by the man of Macedonia, pleading for them, remember, to come and help them. Of course, we remember that Paul's version of help, Christian version of help, is to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see this word, therefore, it references the vision that he'd had. 
because they had concluded, they had interpreted the vision together that God had called them to go and help by preaching the gospel to the people of Macedonia. So they, they set out ASAP and then they run a straight course for Philippi. And it's worth noting that Luke lays this out. They ran a straight course. There was not any sightseeing. No one needed to go bury one of their family members first. Of course, Luke is from this region. No one needed to take a day or two to go and say goodbye to their friends. Luke put his hand to the plow along with the rest of them. There was no delay. These men are eager to preach the gospel. These men are captured by the work that God has called them to do, gripped by the certainty of their calling, which we looked at last week. Remember, they'd been wandering through Phrygia and Galatia and Mysia and Bithynia, and then they received the vision, and now they know where they are to be. And they know they are to preach the gospel. They know they are to plant churches, and they know that they are to do this in Macedonia. And through wisdom and various decision-making points, they conclude that Philippi is the place to start. About their journey to Philippi, commentary says they sail into Samothrace, the site of a mystery religion worshiping the twin fertility gods, the Kabiri. Samothrace is an island with a 5,577-foot mountain peak, Mount Fingari, from which Poseidon was said to watch over Troy, which we discussed last week as Troas. Now, this is a midway point, and then they journeyed to Neapolis, 10 miles away from Philippi, and it served as the port for Philippi. And it was a naval base in 42 BC. Now, this journey covers 125 miles in total, and it is a journey with favorable winds at this point in time, as the return trip that we'll see in Acts 20 takes five days and not just two days as here. The last 10 miles would involve traveling on the Via Ignatia. I think I've pronounced that properly. This road ran from Dyrrachium on the Adriatic Sea eastward through Macedonia and thus through Thessalonica, Amphipolis, and Philippi to Neapolis. You can see there, I don't think it showed up too well on your sermon notes, but I tried to get you a, a little route there of the Via Ignatia so you could see how it runs from the Adriatic Sea there through what is today parts of Albania, Macedonia, and Greece, all the way to what would have been into Byzantium in the past. And so that long east, east-west running, you know, easterly-westerly road was what he went on from Neapolis into Philippi. And we see again the Lord's providence in giving these roads and these travel ways that they're able to Use for the purpose of God's kingdom. Now, we're told about Philippi. It is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. So let's think about this. Paul and his team aim for the easternmost portion of Macedonia. If you look at where Philippi is, it's not quite the most eastern, but of the prominent cities, it's the most eastern. And as we will see, their plan is to go west-southwest through the coastal towns of Macedonia seeking those whom they can help. Macedonia is a big place. They didn't know for sure exactly where to go. And you can deduce from what they did that their plan was to start in the eastern part of Macedonia and work their way to the west, finding the help, finding those who needed the help to preach to them. Now, it's not only the most easterly spot, but also it is the most important city of that part of Macedonia. It is a very large, prosperous, influential place in Macedonia. And so, of course, planting the gospel in a place like that 
is can provide for wide distribution of the gospel from that location. Commentary says, and Luke comments, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. Every word in that statement is important. Liberals scoff at this statement, saying that Philippi was not the capital of Macedonia because Thessalonica was. But that, but this doesn't say, Luke does not say that this is the capital. It says it was the foremost city of that region of Macedonia. And Philippi was indeed foremost in terms of glorious history and Roman administration and finances and influence. It was a massive gold mining area producing more than a thousand talents of gold every year. Now that's 2,632,000 ounces per year. There was a leading medical school there. This was where many of the best Roman military officers were retired and had been given beautiful estates. And so it was a city of influence, but it was also extremely hostile to what they considered cults. This is likely why these women are praying, that we'll see, are praying outside the city. Paul usually tried to find a city where a synagogue could be a starting point for preaching, but there was no such synagogue, at least no such synagogue is mentioned, so it's a strong suggestion that there wasn't even a synagogue present in this city because of how hostile this Roman colony was to Judaism. So what can we say about Philippi? Well, if you know your geography, you know that this is where the gospel conquest of Europe begins. And we can think it through and realize that God's providential movement from east to west of the gospel makes us the recipients of that. Us Gentiles of European descent are the recipients of this. This tiny beginning was the tiny tip of a massive fulcrum, which would quickly lead to the entire continent of Europe becoming Christian. And through Europe, missions spreading to the rest of the world. As one mission speaker said, as we look back across the intervening 20 centuries, we can see that this is one of the most important events of all time. It changed the entire course of Western civilization. Perhaps no single event since the cross of Christ has so affected the world as Paul's seemingly unpretentious decision to cross a narrow neck of water. So that man of Macedonia is calling for help, yes, for Macedonia. But we can see that the preaching of the gospel went throughout all of the Western world as a result of this great work there. And we're told about Lydia today, the very first convert. It's also important to have in your head uh, the background of the level of Roman hostility towards Judaism in this area. Commentary says the year before this, so the year before these events, which was around AD 49, Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome because they were blamed for creating a religious disturbance. Acts 18 verse 2 mentions this edict as the reason why Aquila had to leave Rome. Here's why that's significant. Luke mentions that this is a Roman colony and colonies were treated as being outposts of Rome. They were districts directly under the control of Rome, just like the District of Columbia is under the United States Congress. And so it is almost certain that all the Jews were expelled from Philippi the year before as well. A decree in Rome would have to be followed in Philippi. Well, that helps to explain verses 20 and 21, 
when Paul and Silas are dragged before the authorities in those verses, it's the same charge against them that was brought against the Jews in Rome the year before. They didn't want Jews in that city. So the likelihood is that any Jewish population that had been present in the past was now moved to another city in Macedonia. Hand to the plow, brothers and sisters. Fit for the kingdom is what we see with Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. Do you think they were aware of this particular situation? Were they aware of the decree of Claudius? I imagine it made CNN and Fox News. Everyone probably knew of this decree. And they went anyways. They trusted God's call upon their lives. They put their hand to the plow and they ran a straight course to do God's will. Understanding the situation and the dangers, they went ahead. Now we see when they get there, they have a slow start. You've got to put yourself in their shoes and imagine how excited they must have been to receive this heavenly vision. They've been wandering, right? This whole thing they went through in Phrygia and the rest of Galatia and Bithynia and Mysia, there's, there's not a lot of fruit there. And they were forbidden to go this way or that way, kind of like ping pong balls. And they finally get some direction. And they're so excited to get there. Well, God still has more teaching for their own souls. And this is often true for people who do any missionary work or any serious gospel work at all is waiting on God. The text says we were staying in that city for some days. So you can imagine each morning getting up and the deep breaths they need to take to try to find those who needed help, those whom God had prepared for the gospel. Arriving after running their straight course, seeking to immediately obey the heavenly vision, no one seems to be interested in the gospel help they have to offer. Maybe they were looking at Paul and saying, Paul, did you eat some of the local psychedelics on that vision or was that really from God? They, you have to wonder what kind of doubting may have, may have been coming into their minds. No one seems interested in Christ or in the gospel at that point in time. It certainly could have been a time for disappointment and discouragement and temptation to head home. Commentary says, it's a good while before any notice at all is taken of him. We were in that city abiding certain days, probably in a public house and at their own charge. For they had no friend to invite them so much as to a meal's meat till Lydia welcomed them. They had made all the haste they could thither, but now that they are there, they are almost tempted to think that they might as well have stayed where they were. Maybe there was time to say goodbye to my family, Paul. Back to the commentary. But so it was ordered for their trial, whether they could bear the pain of silence and lying by when this was their lot. Those eminent and useful men are not fit to live in this world that know not how to be slighted and overlooked. Let not ministers think it strange if they be first strongly invited to a place and then looked shyly upon when they come. Brothers and sisters, please take note. The Lord may take his servants through a time of extended waiting, even in the context of the certainty of their call before they discover their fruitful gospel ministry opportunities. I find this to be particularly pertinent for us. Next, note the specific calling that God gives to his servants. It keeps them active, hopeful, buoyed up, glad-hearted, seeking their gospel ministry opportunities day by day with doors remaining shut. 
Zechariah 4.10, we've heard it. Who has despised the day of small things. So we see this principle here, don't we? With Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. And the great encouragement that they've experienced to this point. All the things that God has given to them to take them to this point. And yet here's another challenge. Another trial. Another time to wait. And what do they do? They hold fast. They keep the faith. And they continue to carry out that with which they have been called to do. Trusting in God's call and in his power. So they go out seeking whom to help. In verse 13. And on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So rather than giving way to the sluggishness of slow start disappointment, Paul and his team are active. They're seeking gospel opportunities. You can imagine they've been praying. They've been seeking wisdom from God to know where to go. They stay together in their commitment and in their work. You can see they're staying together. They're praying. They're seeking God together. And then they use wisdom as they seek to find those whom the Lord has prepared for the gospel. They are not wandering aimlessly. They look around. They try to know the customs of that local area. So they go to where God-fearers are known to meet for prayer. And they go there on the Sabbath day seeking the people, the place, and the time most likely to yield gospel fruit. Oh no, they're not discouraged. They're trusting God and seeking the good works to walk into that he has prepared in advance for them to do. They are seeking God's kingdom. They have received wisdom from him. They've trusted this great promise that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. The heart was there to preach the gospel, the calling for that particular location. They needed God's wisdom to pinpoint that gospel ministry. Again, I believe this is particularly appropriate for our assembly as well. So arriving at their destination, they find women there praying, worshiping God on the Sabbath. And they sit down with them and they speak with them. During that conversation, what do they do? They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to these God-fearing women. They have found those whom God has prepared for gospel help. What joy. What joy. The walls of Jericho came falling down, and that is no greater miracle than the walls that God brought down in the heart of Lydia on that day. And brothers and sisters, we should consider this And hope for this same experience in our own lives, in our own ministry efforts as well. I want us to see here that the team follows through. The hand is still to the plow. They didn't find some reason not to engage with these women. They didn't find some reason not to preach the gospel to them. Their own fears, their own trepidations, their own uncertainties about how these individuals might respond to them or what the community might think of them or any other ideas they might have in their mind. They followed through and they preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They ran the straight course. They kept their hand to the plow until they had a chance to plant the seeds running the straight course to find the good works that God has prepared in advance for them to do. This should bring great encouragement to our hearts and to our minds. 
as we consider ourselves and our families and our church and God's church in general. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship, His masterpieces, created in Christ Jesus for a specific purpose, for good works, not that we prepare ahead of time, but that God prepared beforehand that we should walk into them. So isn't it beautiful to see this team seeking to find those good works and confident that God had set them out before him. I hope that we will observe that when Christians seek to find gospel opportunities, patiently waiting upon the Lord with hearts that are there for his glory and for his name. And remember, as we talked about before, who love his law and who are doing things his way, seeking his guidance, trusting in his specific calling they will find gospel opportunities. This is true for every Christian throughout the history of time. If you go seeking to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to present his saving word to the lost, he will grant that to you. Now, some people are more gifted in evangelism than others. We have to grant that. But all of us are called to speak the word of grace to those around us and to pursue speaking the word of grace in the midst of our lives as we go to make disciples. So next we see Lydia receiving the divine help that the man of Macedonia had asked for. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So this woman, Lydia, is her name. Isn't it sweet that we get to know her name? The name of the first convert in Europe that we read about. Lydia means travail, laborious effort. And what a, a great word for us to hear regarding the church born in Europe at that time. Because what great work and travail, what great labor there would be along the way. Fox's Book of Martyrs could never have enough pages to describe all the work and suffering that saints after this time went through, bringing the gospel to the Western world and to the rest of the world. So she becomes the first European convert to Christianity, and her name is placed in Scripture for us to remember her, and it seems to even name our children after her. It is an honor to her to have her name recorded here in the book of God, according to the commentary, so that wherever the scriptures are read, there shall, be, shall this be told concerning her. Now note this. The names of the saints are precious with God. Did you know your name is precious with God? And while none of us can have our names recorded in the Bible, did you know that there is a book with your name in it? If God opens your heart, you shall find your name written there in the book of life. And this is even better than having your name in the Bible and more to be rejoiced in than anything. Any place you could have your name, that's where you want it. And you should know that the Lord knows your name. And if he has opened your heart, he has your name in his book, no less than he has your heart, your name engraved on his own heart. We're told she's a seller of purple. Now, Lydia is an active, able woman. Certainly, Proverbs 31 comes to mind. And likely it is her trade itself that brought her across the water from Asia Minor, seeking to expand the estate of her household. 
She's an active woman. There's no mention made of her husband. We don't know the rest of the story. But she is a woman to be praised. She works hard. She brings honor upon women and upon the work of sales itself, being a tradesman, being a merchant. Commentary says she had a calling, an honest calling, which the historian takes notice of to her praise. She was none of those women that the apostle speaks of in 1 Timothy 5 who learned to be idle, and not only idle, but other things. And also we see that it was a mean calling. She was a seller of purple, not a wearer of purple. Few such are called. The notice here taken of this is an intimation to those who are employed in honest callings. If they be honest in the management of them, not to be at all ashamed of them. Note here, brothers and sisters, that almost all forms of work can be put to use for the Lord God, for his glory, for the sake of his kingdom, by those who love him and worship him. Where is she from? She is from Thyatira, is the name of the town she is from. Some providence has brought her to Philippi at this time, and as I've said, it's likely associated with her trade, we can guess. And we'll see later in this text that her household is with her. So this is very unlikely to be just a short business trip. She appears to have relocated to Macedonia from eastern Thyatira. It seems likely she would have been part of the life of the early church at Thyatira. We know that there is a church at Thyatira from the book of Revelation. Perhaps, perhaps Lydia had stood against Jezebel. Listen to the revelation via John, a letter from Christ written to Thyatira about 26 years after Lydia's conversion. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Makes you think of Lydia, doesn't it? Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. As I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. She can't help but wonder. Lydia's family members, friends, extensions from her household who may have been involved in all of this and participated in, even received this letter during that time. You can see there the churches in the map that I put in there, the seven churches there in Asia to whom John writes this, these letters given to him, to him from Christ. Well, what is she doing there, this Lydia, this seller of purple from Thyatira? She's worshiping God. The Lord had already brought Lydia to believe in the Most High God. But she had yet to hear the gospel and to believe in Christ. Her belief toward God is manifested by her earnest efforts to worship him and to keep his Sabbath. 
Yet this is not sufficient to be delivered from sin, death, and hell. Oh, how many people are there sitting in pews today who believe in God? God bless America. And they, they speak of God all the time. And they don't miss a day when the church's doors are open. But they've never learned of the Messiah and the necessity of their sins being forgiven through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Commentary says, note, it is not enough to be worshipers of God, but we must be believers in Jesus Christ. Oh, hear this, everyone. There is no coming to God as a father, but by Jesus Christ as mediator. But those who worshiped God according to the light they had stood, fair for the discoveries of Christ. Those who worshiped God according to the light they had, stu- they had stood fair for the discoveries of Christ and his grace to them. For to him that has shall be given more, and to them Christ would be welcome. For those that know what it is to worship God, they see their need of Christ and know what use to make of his mediation. Now, children, sometimes I'll try to, while I'm preaching, get your attention. Because I know little ones, I've said a lot, and it's easy for your minds to kind of drift away to what I'm saying. So this is particularly me reaching out to all the little ones. Parents, if you see your little ones aren't really paying attention, give them a nudge. Because I want to ask you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you believed that Jesus Christ died upon the cross for your sins? Amen. This is very important. I think we could say there's nothing more important. You've heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard how he was sent from heaven by the Father and how he lived a perfect life and fulfilled all of God's law. And how on the cross, he took upon himself all of the punishment that we deserve. Our sin was placed upon him. And that in his death, he suffered all that we should have suffered. And God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Look as we go on here what happens in Lydia's heart, children. I want you to see what happens in Lydia's heart. And I want you to ask yourself, has this happened in my heart? Has everybody got that? And that's for all of us. As we go forward and you see what God has done in Lydia's heart, ask yourself, has this happened in my life? So next we see the text tells us that the Lord opened her heart. In the midst of her worship toward God, she hears the gospel of Jesus Christ from the lips of Paul and his team. Then the Lord works upon her heart, giving her new life in Christ. Note this now. Did Lydia open her own heart? Did Lydia unlock the door after Jesus knocked? Did, did Lydia agree that the Lord could open her heart? Brothers and sisters, please note that it is the Lord who opened her heart. The, the heart's first opening to the word of God must be done by God himself. If Jesus stands at the door and knocks and you open the door to let him in, it means he was already there. He is the one who opens the heart 
commentary says, conversion work is God's work. It is he that works in us both to will and to do. Not as if we had nothing to do, but of ourselves, without God's grace, we can do nothing. But the salvation of those that are saved must be wholly ascribed to God. He is the one who brings the salvation. Brothers and sisters, children, adults, has God opened your heart to his word? I want us to learn some things about our hearts from this. The heart is ever, is and ever shall be closed off to the gospel unless the Lord opens it. The heart must be opened by God. The heart, we cannot open it ourselves. This is a very important thing for every human being to know. Commentary says she had not only her heart touched, but her heart was opened. You see, an unconverted soul, it is shut up and it is fortified against Christ. It is straightly shut up as Jericho against Joshua. Christ, in dealing with the soul, knocks at the door that is shut against him. And when a sinner is effectually persuaded to embrace Christ, then the heart is opened for the King of glory to come in. Has the King of glory come into your heart? Has he opened your heart and come in to dwell in you? The understanding is then opened to receive the divine light. And what else? The will is then opened to receive the divine law. You see, everything is affected. And then your affections, that is what you love, are opened to receive divine love. As, oh, children, has this occurred in your life? You see, when the heart is thus open to Christ, the ear becomes open to his word. The lips become opened in prayer. The hand becomes opened in charity. And the steps are enlarged in all manner of gospel obedience. Young and old alike, please examine yourselves and see, has God done this in your life? Next, I hope we'll see that salvation comes via God opening the heart. It's not just a set of behaviors. It's just not a set of beliefs that you say that you agree with. It is an internal transformation The inner man must be awakened to the gospel, not just our intellect, not just a set of rules that we follow. We must be born again from above. Conversion work is heart work, the commentary says. It is a renewing of the heart, the inward man, the spirit of the mind, and no power can tread there and make it happen except the Lord God himself. Our plight is utterly irremediable apart from Christ working in us. That's what he does. He gives us his presence and new hearts. When he opens our hearts to him, he gives us his very heart and mind and will so that we come to think what he thinks and love what he loves and do what he commands. What's the first thing that we see in her life as evidence of her having her heart opened to God? She heeds, she attends to the word of God. So children, adults, this is another way for you to assess 
Has God done this in my life? By asking yourself, what is my attitude toward the word of God? What is your relationship with the scriptures? You see, the first outer evidence of sincere belief in the gospel is an earnest and sincere attention to the word of God. And you will find it to be your heart's treasure day in and day out. Commentary says she took great notice of the word of God. Her heart was so open that she attended to the things that were spoken by Paul. She not only gave attendance on Paul's preaching, but gave attention to it. She applied to herself, that's how some read it, the things that were spoken by Paul. And then only the word does us good. Then only the word does us good and makes an abiding impression upon us when we apply it to ourselves. I'm going to ask you how often do you, if you're honest with yourself, when you're listening to a sermon or you're hearing a scripture, you're, you're thinking about so-and-so and how much they'll benefit from hearing that scripture or hearing that sermon. Instead, would it be that we would each take the word of God to heart for ourselves and grow up in Christ and receive his grace? Going on, the commentary says, now this was an evidence of the opening of her heart and was the fruit of it. Wherever the heart is opened by the grace of God, it will appear by a diligent attendance on and attention to the word of God, both for Christ's sake, whose word it is, and for our own sakes, who are so nearly interested in it. But there's more. She not only has her heart opened by the Holy Spirit to attend, to give attention to the word of God, but she then obeys what she hears. Says, and when she and when she and her household were baptized. So she's heard the word of God. She's given attention to the word of God. And the first thing she does in obedience to the word of God is to get her and her household baptized. The next evidence of her sincere belief is to obey the word of God Paul preached to her. Not only has she trusted in Christ as her Savior and Lord, not only has she given earnest attention to God's word, but now she goes on with hand to plow and obeys the word of God. She and her household are baptized. Commentary says Christ says she took upon her the profession of his holy religion. She was baptized And by this solemn rite, she was admitted a member of the Church of Christ. And with her, her household also was baptized. Those of them that were infants in her rite. For if the root be holy, so are the branches. And those that were grown up by her influence and authority. She and her household were baptized by the same rule that Abraham and his household were circumcised. Because the seal of the covenant belongs to the covenanters and to their seed. We read in Genesis 17, this is where the commentary was pointing. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Part of the Reformed faith is understanding the continuity between the old covenant writings and the new covenant writings. 
and what we see displayed here for us, which I'll open up for us in a future sermon, perhaps after we finish this section in Philippi, because there are two household baptisms in Philippi, is to understand what is household, what is the household baptism in view and its origins in the Old Covenant writings and its continuity for us in the New Covenant. So what do we see next about Lydia's faith on display? She has heard the word of God. <clears throat> She's gotten baptized. She's gotten her household baptized. <clears throat> Hospitality, brothers and sisters. Hospitality. I've said along the way that this is applicable to us, and I think it's so applicable to us as well. I know we have proximity challenges, but, oh, we need one another. We need one another. We need more face-to-face fellowship time with one another. And I'm going to plead with you during this section of the preaching to think about that and see what we can do to have more opportunities for in-home fellowship together. Listen to Lydia's heart for hospitality. She begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. You can see Paul, you know, he was never one to want to burden people at all, right? He didn't never want to be accused of doing this for money. So she had to work on him a little bit <laughs> and the team to come and to take their hospitality, but they eventually do. So hers was no empty profession, no mere formality of household baptism. But now she goes on with fervency to show that her household belongs to Christ by op- opening her home to Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, and their team. It's as if hospitality, household hospitality, is the best evidence that your household has been baptized. Note here, brothers and sisters, that sincere belief in Christ always leads to dedicated, fervent hospitality. Commentary says to testify her gratitude to those who had been the instruments of divine grace in this blessed change that was wrought upon her. When her heart was open to Christ, her house was open to his ministers for his sake, and they were welcome to the best entertainment that she had which she did not think too good for those of whose spiritual things she had reaped so plentifully. And certainly it also demonstrates her continued hunger for God's word. I'm sure she had gotten to know these men well enough to know that she was going to hear the word of God while she was with them. And it shows her continued hunger, not only to be a blessing to them, but to continue to be blessed by the word of God, which defines for us, does it not, the essence of Christian fellowship. That we love being with one another. We love sharing our food and our home with one another. And we love exchanging God's word together and keeping up with what he's doing in one another's lives. Updating one another with how he's working in our lives and our children's lives. And praying for one another. And being in this life of sanctification and service in earnest together inside our homes. May God grant this to us more and more, brothers and sisters, for our church. So in summary, let's go through some of these principles and I'll just kind of lay them out for us with a few questions again to consider yourself. Have you put your hand to the plow, consecrated yourself unto the Lord and made the decision that you will not look back and decided to run the straight course? You may recall when we talked about that particular scripture in Luke, that when you're, when you're guiding a plow, you have to pick a spot in the, off in the distance. You can't be looking right in front of you. 
You certainly can't be looking back and you certainly can't take your hand off the plow. You have to know where God is calling you to go with that plow. And so if you fixed your eyes upon what God has called you to do and put your hand to that plow and continued forward on that path. Now, granted, sometimes it's kind of a curvy thing that we end up plowing in our lives. But God continues to clarify our vision and help us to stay true. Have you considered the things that might cause you to take your hand from the plow? Some of the temptations that might come your way to take your hand off the plow. I'll tell you what I've seen. I'll tell you what I've seen. The strongest temptation you children will face as you grow up is discontentment and peer pressure and desire to fit in and have lots of friends and be cool. Parents, you too will have this same temptation in a different way. You'll want to take your hand off the plow because you'll see how your children are not benefiting from all of the fun and relationships that other children appear to be having. Whether it be a life overcome and good things squeezed out through sports or academics or debate teams or whatever it might be, these, these are all good things in their place. I think you see what this culture does to us to distract us from the goal of marriage, which is to raise up godly seed for the Lord. And may we keep our eyes on that distant point that he has called us to. There's other things we could say. There's other things we could say. But this is the strongest, most effective temptation that I have seen and watched tear apart Christian families and make them very unhappy when they thought they were pursuing something good. Next, I want us to note that the Lord may take his servants through a time of waiting before they discover their gospel ministry opportunities. What did these servants of the Lord in today's text, what did they do? Surely they prayed. Surely they remembered God's promises and guidance. Surely they remembered Christ upon the cross and the purpose of their lives, the salvation that he had wrought for them and the purpose for their existence in this earth to bring him glory through their lives and the specific calling that they had and his law that they are to walk in. And they certainly would have prayed and sought wisdom as they were still looking and knocking. So the waiting, remember, it's not just a passive waiting in your bed, eating popcorn, watching Netflix. It is an active waiting where you're knocking on doors and praying and seeking where the, where the Lord would, would have you to go. And they were obviously doing this for some time. May we learn from this, brothers and sisters. Especially as we are praying and desiring to link up with our neighbors here in the town of Edgefield. Uh, may the Lord bless us in this regard. With patience and with wisdom. I want us to see here also that the specific calling that God gives to his servants keeps them active seeking their gospel ministry opportunities. It's a very important thing to have a specific calling. This keeps us from despising the day of small things and helps us remain focused upon what God has called us to do. Next, 
And do you have this? Is this specific calling upon your life? Do you have this? Next, also see that if you as a Christian seek gospel opportunities with a heart of love for Christ, constrained by the love of Christ, you're patient, you're seeking his guidance, you're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking, you're trusting in his specific calling, you're walking in his law as you do this. Brothers and sisters, you will find gospel opportunities. He will bring individuals into your life or into your family, perhaps some to whom you can show hospitality and share the word with that you can minister to and you can serve through your life. He will bless you to this end. I hope this encourages you. It should encourage our church and each family and each individual. Next, I hope that you'll remember in our evangelistic efforts, in our gospel seeking efforts, our outreach efforts, Oh, it is the Lord who opens the hearts. And connected to this, it is the Lord who builds his church. We are called to a life of faithfulness and the results rest in his hands. Paul certainly knew there was no guarantee anyone would come to faith on that riverside that day. But he preached nonetheless and he sought nonetheless. This will free us from frustration and anxiety regarding outcomes. And certainly bless us with peace as we find ourselves rejoicing in simply knowing and doing his will. Hearts first opening to the word of God must be done by God himself. So as we go forth in our gospel efforts in one another's lives, wherever we may be, we can rest in the one who is able to tread upon that ground and bring new life and bring real change into people's lives. Eternal salvation. When this occurs, brothers and sisters, and again, little ones looking at your own life, little ones and big ones, are you heeding God's word? You see, this is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in and opens your heart. Your heart is not only open to the word, your heart is hungry for his word. Your heart wants his word. And and I, I say this with the most gentlest way that I can possibly say it. But if you do not hunger for God's word, You need to be very seriously concerned about the state of your soul. Now, it doesn't have to be like this greatest, biggest hunger you've ever had. Because we're being changed. We're growing. But if there's no hunger within you for God's word, you should tremble for the state of your soul. Because this is what God does when he saves his children. He opens their heart to believe the gospel, to confess their sin to God, to trust in Christ as their savior and to see that Christ is the word of God and to desire his word in their lives so their faith can be strengthened and their lives can be strengthened and they can grow. They long for the word. Next, they benefit from the sacraments. We see here household baptism. It was wonderful this morning in Christian instruction hour to Go through the question that was just perfect for this. How the Lord uses the gospel to begin our life in the faith. And and then going on, he uses the sacraments to confirm our faith. We see this in today's text, don't we? Well, you see, you'll love God's word and God's sacraments as well. You'll long for the Lord's Supper. You'll rejoice in baptism every time you get to be a part of it and see it happen. 
And you know what? May it be that we can have a, a little spot where our houses, where people come in, with a little book right there that people might want to sign when they come to visit. And we can remember the stories of that special light that comes upon us during Christian fellowship within our homes. And that we would be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to grow up in hospitality together as his people and to open our homes not only to one another, but to all those to whom God calls us to minister in this way. Oh, brothers and sisters, Christian homes are open homes. And may it grip us that we would find a continuous affection in our hearts, starting with Christ upon the cross who left his home and who was shut out of his father's presence and had no fellowship and died for us upon the cross. And we would rejoice in his word to us and, and enjoy his sacraments. And that same hunger would flow right through to opening our homes to one another. It may very well be. It may very well be one of the most important demonstrations of sincere Christianity is hospitality. It may be more true of us, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let us pray. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, please bless us, Lord, we ask that not only if our hearts have not been opened, that you would open any hearts here today for the first time to the new birth. But Lord, as we grow up in your ways, that you would confirm our faith and strengthen our faith through your sacraments as you show to us the reality of who you are and what you've done. And as you promise to us that we have been sealed in you forever. But even in this, Lord, that you would grow us up in hospitality and that we would each come to see that the homes and the resources that you've given to us are best put to use for your gospel, are best put to use for your kingdom, Lord, not for ourselves. And that in this we would find hospitality to be a great joy. Oh, grow us up in all of these things we ask, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.